Hey everyone, it's Jim Sirk with the Medical Sales Nation. Hope you're having a great day. This is a must-listen-to podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's not a business. I do it just to bring us together, get some more information out there. And this is information you're going to want to listen to. I interviewed Bruce Radcliffe, the Vice President of Strategic Sourcing at the Advocate Aurora Health System, a 27-hospital and growing system. We dive into what he calls supply chain value equation. We talk about the consolidation in industry, how to position your products at an entry point. And he, he goes into where, what supply chain value is, what clinical value is, and the overall value and how to balance that information with cost, quality, and outcomes. And he really dives into this, um, you're positioning your entry point into a hospital. And what he means by that is that we all know what's happening. Doctors are still involved with the decision-making, but so is administration and so supply. He goes into having patient-focused products. What and who is your product for? And is it the right product for the right patient and know what your product does, but also be honest on what it doesn't do and who it's not for. He, he goes into that. We talk about thoughts on commodities, what he looks for in sales reps, what he wants to hear from a startup, and how to go after his hospitals as long as you're a disruptor to the big guys to put them back on their heels. Love to hear that. We talk about value. He goes into value, 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 value. That does not mean a low price. And and he goes into it and, and being very honest, and it's a business-to-business conversation that we're having. We also go into the robotics hype that's out there. I mean, you guys know that I'm big on new technology, robotics, predictive analytics, deep learning, artificial intelligence, but who's going to pay for it? What we're not hearing from the pundits out there is who's going to pay for these products. And it's not an easy equation. And so we get his thoughts on that. And um, and we get into big tech like Apple, Google. Everyone's talking about how they're getting into healthcare. Well, what value are they going to bring to us with this data? And he goes into what he believes is called translational medicine and what that means and the value that can only be derived through this translational medicine. And finally, we go into future product decision-making, which we all want to know about. I'm going to tell you that most of us are not prepared for what this conversation is alluding to today and into the future. So sit back, hold on to your seat, and let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. It's Jim Surik, and I have a great guest here today, somebody who's not on the sales side, not on the marketing side, not on the venture capitalist side, but on the hospital side, it's Bruce Radcliffe. Uh, he's the VP of Strategic Services for the Advocate Aurora Healthcare System, recently merged. And uh, Bruce, maybe uh, you could just tell the audience about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you, Jim, for having me on on the podcast. Glad to be here. Sure. Uh, a little bit about myself. Again, Bruce Radcliffe, Vice President here at Advocate Aurora. Um, my area of expertise is in the sourcing strategy realm, so that's Medical sourcing, non-medical sourcing, such as things as EVS facilities, etc. Um, also dabble a little bit in the data analytics. So I have a small team that reports to me as well uh, that handles kind of the supply chain value equation. And, and what does that mean nowadays in, in today's environment? That's an ever-changing question. So again, working for Advocate Aurora here in the Midwest. Glad to be on today. Hopefully uh, have a good dialogue. Yeah. So, no, I'm excited about this because... Usually on the podcast, it's, we're, we're talking about best practices for sales reps from a skill side. We get um, CEOs on the line to talk about their um, companies, usually startups. Sure. And um, so this is the first time, and I'm really excited to have you on this, to start providing a little bit more of an education to the sales force. And I bring this up because I talk to a lot of uh, medical sales reps out there who don't they know things are changing in healthcare, but they don't really know. Sure. Nor do, nor am I confident that even the large medical companies 
truly understand, or if they do, they're not communicating it to everyone within the, especially on the commercial side. So with that, the first thing maybe I want to ask you about is the Advocate Aurora merger. What was the strategy around that? Because it's happening all over the country. So I figured I'd just ask you. Yeah, I think generically, you know, healthcare consolidation is, like you said, Jim, is happening all over the nation. Um, happening for a variety of reasons. The, the major reason that I see out there nowadays is around, you know, economies of scale or, um, you know, trying to rid the system of duplicative services and, and geographies. And that might be, you know, uh, you have a lot of capability, a lot of, you know, potential in a market that may or may not need all of that capacity. Right. right. So as these health systems come together, it's an opportunity just to evaluate our resources. You know, brick and mortar is, uh, you know, obviously costs a lot of money to be deployed in, in sure. this geography. So really it's just a conversation of how do we rid the system of some of the extra expense yeah. and, and become more efficient. So, uh, you know, I, speaking of the advocate uh, Aurora merger, certainly, you know, really, uh, we liken it to a jigsaw puzzle. Great geographies with really minimal overlap. Sure. Uh, both organizations incredibly successful in their own right. Just really a great merger of you know cultures and geography together into one yeah. much larger system. Yeah. Okay. And it's out of competition too, right? It's it's happening, so Correct. you got to stay yep. relevant. Absolutely. Right? Any any of these mergers certainly one of the considerations that the the federal government looks at is to make sure that it doesn't reduce competition. So in this you know merger that. You know, we were part of certainly um, there was no competitive overlap. Like we said, uh, geographies just barely touched at right. the border. Um, there might be a couple clinics or, or non-acute centers on each side that previously might have had some overlap, but uh, otherwise now it was uh, you know, okay. Kind of a, a good, like I said, jigsaw puzzle. Sure. Yeah, the nice one. So, how many hospitals are in the system now? So, uh, Advocate is twenty-seven hospitals right now. Okay. Um, and growing, right? So, building a couple hospitals, you know, here and there, but. Certainly, it's uh, in the growth mode. Okay. It's awesome. All right. So, it is exciting. I mean, I change, everyone's afraid of change, mm -hmm. right? But change is a, a constant in what we're doing. Yeah. And we're used to, from a commercial side, the way in which we, we would operate, you know, 20 years ago, I've been doing this for 25 years, is we build a relationship with a doctor, mm -hmm. right? We have a product, we believe in the product. And uh, building those relationships, providing service, a lot of it is that service. It's a service to sell because if you don't provide the good service, docs aren't going to use your product. Right. But that is all changing, mm -hmm. right? And so when you, when when I say that, what does what goes through your head about the way in which the commercial team from any company, small or large, you know, the Medtronics, the Abbots of the world, what do you what do you think? How do you think they should be coming to your hospital system to, to present who they are and what they have? Yeah, I think you know one of the first things that they need to do, Jim, is, is think about what, how do they want to position themselves as far as their entry point? Okay. And I think entry point is incredibly important because, um, like you alluded to, the, the changing dynamic in healthcare today, I think the entry points are changing, and therefore the tactics need to change. Previously, you know, it was a, a physician relationship was the entry point. Right. And with that came kind of access and, and uh, conversations around, you know, value and, and what that physician's needs were. That conversation still happens today, but the entry points are more and more becoming supply chains or administrators as the entry point. Sure. Or, hey, we're thinking about building this or how would it be perceived if we went this way? Um, physicians have so many things on their plate from the electronic health records right. to documentation requirements. Their world is changing. And I, I heard this fact, and I'll probably quote it wrong, that the physicians 50 years ago, the amount of information that they accumulated during their career uh, doubled twice in their career, right? So they went through schooling, and then their education would essentially double again right. over the terms of their career. Nowadays, the amount of information that physicians are processing doubles every seven months. Oh so when you think about it from that perspective, right. of, you know, they're long in the tooth really early in their careers, except the growth curve never stops. So the reason I bring that up is a lot of times some of the conversations around product and other such aren't really relevant to physicians or they're not hitting a high enough priority on the physician's list that's getting them the right 
<laughs> push, so to speak, right? At least from a, a vendor sure. perspective, right? You want to build momentum, you want to build interest, you want to build right. all these things. Uh, supply chain is where, in my opinion, obviously I'm biased. Of course, well, that, but, but see that, Bruce, that's why I love being a part of this, right? Because you just give that alternate perspective yeah. where I really believe a lot of us in the sales force throughout the entire country mm -hmm. don't understand. Right. So, well, and and it, everyone's got their truth. Right? Right. I'll, I'll speak my supply chain <laughs> truth. And, and what I, the way I look at it is supply chain, we, uh, the supply chain that I you know, help run is very much a, a service organization, right? So I am not personally making decisions on product utilization. Sure. That scares a lot of my supply chain peers out there mm. to say, what do you mean you're not making that decision? I'm not. I, I engage the clinicians to get their subject matter expertise and their opinion, and then we execute. Does that mean that every um, you know physician opinion out there is automatically executed? No. What we're doing is we're, we're taking information from the supply chain perspective, the clinical perspective, and the value perspective, and trying to put them into a singular conversation. Okay. Rather than having three or four disparate conversations. Right. And then not really knowing who has the ball. Supply, I believe supply chain's role is to facilitate a balanced conversation. Mm -hmm. And I haven't met a physician yet that when given all the information at their fingertips, both cost, quality, outcome, as well as, you know, that, that uh, I don't want to say political, but that market dynamic, sure. all those other things, they make really great decisions. That's why they got into the business of providing care. Right. They want to do the best for the patients and they want to do the most uh, efficient thing they can. Right. So if you bring all those into one kind of conversation, you end up with really great decisions. Okay. And so what is that, um, you know, so you, this balanced decision, the entry point, mm -hmm. and, and I think what you're saying is that spend as much time as you do with the clinicians as you do with supply chain yeah. and people in, in I would, there. I would say it's 50-50, and what I would encourage is that first 5 or 10% of your effort be with supply chain. Okay. Right? So, and it's not asking permission. It's bringing awareness to the supply chain that, hey, Here's the product that's out there. Here's here's what I'm going to attempt to sell. Right. Um, and that awareness, I think, just will help downstream significantly. Yeah. That if you do get some of that traction from a clinical perspective, the supply chain isn't going to immediately hit the brakes on you. Sure. And say, okay, no, we're done until you tell me what this is about. Right. So it's just that, hey, awareness, or I sometimes will call it the uh, license to hunt. Yeah. Of, okay, new companies come in. Here's, what, here's kind of my... My proposal, here's our, our value equation. Bruce, I'm going to be out talking to your, uh, you know, the specialists in your area about X, Y, Z. Hey, great. Have a great time. Uh, what right. I'll tell them is don't do it on clinical care time because that's the patient's time. Sure. To be respectful of the uh, physician's office, you know, time and other such. But I jokingly say if you want to stalk them in a parking lot, or whatever. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> but, but don't do it somewhere where you could potentially negatively impact patient care. Sure. As long as they do that, I'm fine. Okay. Conversation one. Now, it's interesting. You said value equation. Yeah. And so, so the company has a value equation. Sure. Right? And you have a value equation. Mm -hmm. Right? How, does, how, how would I know if I've got this, this new product to know if what I'm presenting or how I'm presenting it fits your value equation? Yeah, and, and so that's a that's a really tough question and will vary with every supply chain. And that's where my side of the industry is getting better okay. of, of aligning what is value. Some will say um, value is buying things for just the least amount of money. Others will say it's quality above all else. And, you know, I feel the supply chains that I've interacted with, um, you know, obviously this is not an advocate of Roar opinion, this is a Bruce opinion, is... Um, what I would say is the it's a balanced conversation around quality and outcome. Yeah. Right? Because we have limited resources, um, but we never sacrifice quality for cost. Okay. No, that's great. It, it's a never event, right? Right. It always has to do, so the product has to do exactly what it is meant to do. It has to do so in a safe, patient-safe, and both clinical and clinician-safe environment. And then I look to see, okay, how can I do that the most cost-effective way? Sure. But it's a two-step. So it's interesting, the quality, though, because, and I agree, right? It had, the product has to work and, and do no harm. But you got, let's say you have just two competing companies, not ten, right? Yeah. Two. How do you determine which one is more has more quality, mm -hmm. right? Because 
all the companies are going to come up with their own studies sure. that they sponsor and say, we're so much better. How do you, with your physician partners, decide what's real and what's not? Well, I think you hit it on the head there. With the physician partners, that's yeah. the difference that I believe the supply chains that I'm involved with um, do it better, faster, smarter, is by going right to the end users as the subject matter experts to say, yeah. okay, um, what do you, take a look at these things. Now let's look at your patient demographic. Yours, not the white paper yeah, right. patient demographic. Right. Yours. And in the Midwest, and those you know on the podcast can't see me, you know, 5'7", 220. Yeah. The Midwest people look like me. Yeah, well, I'm not too far off. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, the white paper of, you know, putting a drug eluting stent in a in a fifty-year-old um, you know, white male that's 180 pounds and six foot two. Yeah. Your outcomes are always going to be good. That's right. Yeah, talk That's right. to me about the, the very, you know, the patient with the high comorbidities and diabetic and non-ambulatory. Talk to me about that. Right. So that's where I really firmly believe that engaging clinicians is the answer. Okay. Um, they're well read on all the white papers, all the oh, perspectives, yeah. and they have to apply that to their patient demographic. Okay. So you're you're going to have companies that um let's pick on hip and knee companies sure. okay sure. so they're going to come up with a new hip a new knee right yep. new type of metal new type of coating you know whatever it is mm -hmm. right and they're going to say you're going to have better quality outcomes sure. right and i'm going to charge you more for it oh, of course yeah. right so somewhere along the line are you i'm sure you are it's kind of a silly question but i'm, I'm interested in it saying to someone to a to a physician surgeon saying does that really going to change your quality? Because there, there was no way they did a 2,000 randomized, 2,000 person randomized prospective multi-center trial to prove that. Because nobody's doing it. Right. So how, how do you, are doctors finally just going, this really isn't going to, are they saying to the companies, this is great, this is nice, yeah. but I'm, I'm good with what I got. Yeah, they actually are. And, and part of it is, is they're, they're trying to determine what are the expectations of the patient. So I'll bring up a, an analogy, mm. and that is if, so what you say, there are outcomes in healthcare where survival is a good outcome. Sure. Right, and, and that's just facts. Right. Right. Um, I had a neurosurgeon tell me once that, uh, and I'll never reveal names, but what he does is barbaric, mm. right? He goes in and does the best he absolutely sure. can. Sure. But there's an expectation with brain surgery that anytime you mess with the brain, bad things happen. That's right. Right, and you could come out not with inability to speak. You could come out inability to walk. And he had told me like, but people thanked me that they survived. Right. Now switch to an orthopedic conversation. If survival was a good outcome of a hip or knee, mm -hmm. you have a very different conversation about what parts and pieces will work right. for survival sure. of hip surgery sure. versus, hey, I don't want to walk in pain. Right. So what clinicians are doing is really understanding what are the relevant outcomes for my patient and for my clinical practice, and what are the right tools and products I need to meet or exceed that expectation. Okay. And that's the secret. So if if you had a patient come in, let's just talk you know, knees for example, some you know, incredibly athletic, high mileage kind of marathon runner, their expectations for knee replacement is very different than my grandmother who is sure. in a nursing home who just wants to be without pain. Right. So really it's that demand matching that if there's a product or something out there that can help that physician accomplish their specific need or desire in a more efficient way, that's leverage. Okay. But if you're selling something like... Uh, you know, an orthopedic implant that would help if you happen to be a marathon runner. There's very few of those out there. Okay. So it's all yeah. about gauging the, sure. the expectations and the demand of the patient with the product. Right. And that's the conversation today. Okay. So now, in your system, because I, I don't know the answer to this question, are you starting to limit the amount of vendors that are selling those type of products? Depending on the product line, right? Okay. So here's my personal theory is um, where you can prove differentiation. Uh, I, as a supply chain professional, will gladly pay a premium for products that can show differentiation. Now, with the blessing comes the curse. And that is, if you have a product that cannot show differentiation, yeah. you're commoditized, okay. regardless of the type of product. And so that, so what, how do you define a commodity? is exactly that, a product category <laughs> that you cannot differentiate from one another. So, for so, example, drug-eluting stents yeah. 
are commodities. That's right. Because they're wonderful. All of the quality outcomes have gotten to the point that it is so minimal the difference between all the big three or four out mm-hmm. there right now. They're all great. You're splitting hairs at yeah. the point where you're more likely to have a conversation with a clinician around a product's deliverability or a patient's allergy to a particular you know drug coding or sure. than you will around the workhorse 95%. Yeah. So to me, you can either standardize into having a singular product and say one size fits all, mm-hmm. or if it's a commodity product and you do need some choice, you can standardize uh, with the clinicians to say, what is the standard deployment of the product? What's the demographic? What's, what does that look like? Right. And you can end up at the same spot. So I'm not, I'm one of the few supply chain guys out there that isn't um, running to a single product yeah. for everything. I'm running to the right product for the right deployment. And that drives some of my peer group nuts. Just okay. okay, so why does it drive them nuts? Because it is, it's contrary to where we've been in the last 30 years, which is fewer vendors equals more volume right. equals less dollars. Right. That doesn't work. We're at 18 plus percent of GDP. And yeah. We didn't get there because everyone was on, hey, let's standardize. Yeah, right. The way we got there is because, in my opinion, again, is if you don't allow for the clinicians to correctly demand, to, to demand match, the right product for the right situation, sure. you end up with these huge lumpy anomalies, right? So, um, so for example, you know, every time I see a, a product recall mm-hmm. on the on the commercials for, have you had this? Yeah, right. uh, please call this lawyer and other right. such. That's indicative, or it tends to be indicative of when there was only one solution out there, right? Right. So I have a really capitalistic view of healthcare, and that is with the right tools the right value will find its way to the top, right? The right product sure. at the right price that creates the right outcome will get used more. So it will kind of self-govern a little bit. So it's interesting because the so the way I'm looking at all of this, yeah. right, is that the sales process for the right product, mm-hmm. right, with the right quality measure and outcome mm-hmm. is going to probably take longer to get into a system to be used but once it's in, it's it's gone through. Let's call it your your product viability funnel, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Now it's there. It's probably hard to get kicked out, yeah. right? But because you did everything right, yeah, it's a long game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any and this will sound bad, but vendors will often be able to get health systems to use their product a few times. Mm-hmm. But to get health systems to commit to their portfolio is a very different conversation, right? Any. Any sales rep can absolutely drum up enough uh, interest from a physician to convince some administrator to try something. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? right I mean, right. You, you don't know how a product can perform until you try it. But to get the sticking power of, hey, you're going to be on our formulary, takes time. Yeah. And that's a long game. Right. Um, and I, I wish more people would take that route. But, but I'll be honest, it, it doesn't matter... What type of product you're selling? Know the know the demographic of the supply chain or the physician or the, its use, and be okay with that demographic. So, we talk about like gloves or drapes, right, right. gowns. Um, I I know some sales rep who've who've made a heck of a living off of parts and pieces, right? Sure, Joking, like, sure. Completely commoditized items and other such. It's just a different sales cycle, different sales angle than somebody who's out there selling you know the Ferraris of you know what used to be CRM devices or now right. is Taver or things right, like right, that. Right. high-end devices. Um, know what your product is, but specifically know what your product isn't. That's that's great and, and, and be fine with that identity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the, the gentleman I know who sells parts and pieces who's made a fine living off of snaps and valves and tubes. And I love the guy. He's one yeah. of my favorite reps ever Yeah, because he's not trying to sell me a Ferrari. And he oh. knows he's not selling a Ferrari. Okay, so, all right, so I get that. So you like him because he's not trying to sell you a Ferrari. Right. But what is he doing right that you like? So to me, the, the number one thing I look for in that kind of relationship is just being proactive. Be be more aware of the uh, dynamic that you're selling into than I am. And if you can educate me as to either what's going on in the marketplace or what's going on with my clinicians, that is a value to me. Okay. That's a, that's a personal exchange of value. Okay. 
So on the podcast, I, I say it all the time, is that we, especially on the commercial side, because we're not inside the the corporate offices all the time, right? right? We're not seeing that with R&D and marketing and research and all that. So what I, t- I say this all the time to the to the audience is that be a student of your game. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying. Yep. Yeah, be a student and then come in and teach me what yeah, you teach know. Teach me something. Right. Because I don't know, I don't even pretend to know a quarter of what I need to. Sure. You know, it, it is every ounce of kind of clinical or industry knowledge has been garnered from, you know, your side of the table or from, I'm a, I love my battle axe nurses, right? Those that have been here 30 plus years, sure. I will say, okay, Bruce, you can mess with this, but if you ever touch this, you know, product or this demographic, yeah. you've got me and 30 <laughs> more people like me to answer to. Right. And those are the, the value exchanges because I find that people um, who are willing to share the knowledge both care about the game, sure. in general, if you want to call it that, but care about the patients, care about the relationships, care about the products that they're selling. Yeah. If they give so um, selflessly, those are the people I want to align myself with, no matter what they sell. Right. You could be selling me paper, but if you're going to treat me like that, you're going to get a completely different level of engagement interaction from me than somebody who's doing more of the hard sale tactics that sure. I'm sure a lot of people have been taught. Sure. Right. And, and, when, and inundated with. When you say hardball tactics, what do you mean by that? So that's that's the kind of stuff of the um, you know I always I always get a kick out of when people want to engage clinicians with price points. Right. That that's one of my funny okay stories that I have out there is whenever a sales rep decides that they want to tell the physician what the price point is and how they're so much better their, than their competitors. I, my back of the you know the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because. The clinicians shouldn't have the actual price point enter into their factor. Sure. Right? I want them, what's the right product to most efficiently treat that patient? And sometimes efficient means more money. Right. right? That's why it's an equation. It's not, I'm not in here preaching, hey, lower cost, lower cost. No. I want the right product that's going to prevent that patient from getting readmitted, that's going to prevent that patient from having a bad outcome. Right. And sometimes you have to pay a little more up front. Right. I'm not against that. Yeah. What I'm against is when you get into these cycles of you're providing a therapy and not really a treatment or you're not curing anything. You're not moving on. You're not moving the disease state forward. Right. And that's verbatim what I've had clinicians tell me. Right. That's not me making yeah, stuff sure. up. It's they're like, I'm frustrated with the fact that this person isn't getting better. Right. No matter what, I, I could throw everything in a kitchen sink at them. They're not getting better, and that's their concern. Yeah. So when I have a sales rep say, hey, you're going to, you know, uh, tell me not to sell, you know, within an institution because of $50. Right. No, that's not what it's about. <laughs> right. But now that you want to bring price points out, we can do that. But the clinicians, I'll tell you what, they don't look, I don't believe that they look at things in simple dollars and cents terms. And I think that can be a little bit derogatory to their profession. Sure. If you think that it's only about dollars and cents. Right. Because it's about a balance. Yeah, that's great. No, that's that's great. You you mentioned something. Turn the conversation a little bit. You, you talked about outcomes and readmission mm-hmm. rates. So healthcare is changing. Value-based payment models. Mm-hmm. Fee-for-service is still here, but within... Where? It's rare and it's, rare. It, yeah. it's going away, right? Yeah, it is. And, and uh, CMS is all over it. Mm-hmm. I read an article from CMS, it was about two months ago, where um, it was a message to um, uh, providers saying, you're not paying attention, right? The, the fee <laughs> sure. for service is going away and yeah. we're going down this quality road and, and uh, you know, the readmission rates, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, the 30-day and 90-day. I think CMS is going to be moving more to a 90-day admission, yeah. right? Uh, penalty, if you will, and so a lot of this stuff is going on. How how do you see it? I mean, from your chair working for this system, that value based payment uh, model. How is it? How do I ask this question? Do you build a strategy around that moving forward? Yes and no. So luckily, um, you know, I feel like this organization has always been value and quality centric. Sure. Right? So. Um, from that perspective, that's that's the no part. Being right. That's part of the core values sure. of, of particularly this health system. Um, but when we've seen different bundles come out, like the orthopedic bundle yeah. and other such, absolutely sit down and strategize around, uh, really it's more around where are we today? What does this mean to us? And 
based on you know some of this uh, call for transparency of now we're going to be reporting some of these things and actually get paid on them. Right. Um, how do we make the most of that bundle? Mm-hmm. Right. So orthopedic bundles are some of the most prominent. So absolutely, we sat down with the clinicians and said, okay, here's the new environment. So let's educate you on what the bundles are, what they mean. Now let's look at where we are today in terms of our uh, efficiency measures within that bundle. And that's outcomes, quality, readmissions, yada, yada, yada. Also costs. Sure. So here's the bundles. Here's what it means. Here's where we're at today. And where do we want to be tomorrow as a team? Mm-hmm. And then we work initiatives to get to our future state. It's not right. the utopian state, but the future state. Sure. So it's a little bit of both. Luckily, the core values already aligned. So then when we get into the more granular initiatives, we're all aligned. We're, we're doing this never, never um, you know, sacrifice that, that quality or that outcome for the sake of the financial efficiency. Sure. Because in today's value uh, equations, you lose if yeah. you do that. Right. Right. It's it's outcome based. Yeah. You don't want to buy a hip and knee from, you know, China because it's a hundred bucks, right? Because your quality. I mean, I'm not picking on China, but just as an example, yeah. but the quality of the product might actually make things worse. Absolutely. Right. And, and we're on the hook for that. Yeah. As we should be. And and there are some aspects to that bundle that, depending on the type of health system that you're selling into, you have to understand what that health system can impact on what they can't. So, right. Some health systems will have a, like an orthopedic, it will be a SNF, right? A skilled nursing facility. Some um, health systems own their SNFs, right? Yeah. That's a different sale sure. into that organization than somebody that doesn't, right? right. Because, so just real quick example there, you know, your length of stay, certainly the hospital wants to reduce that as much as they can. But if a skilled nursing facility isn't aligned, they get a piece of that payment as well. Okay. So if you actually if you hurry them out of the hospital to get them to the SNF, and they're not ready to really move on, they could spend more time, time in the SNF, see, yeah. which ends up costing the hospital money, right. or vice versa. Too much time in the hospital, zero time in the SNF. You've got an inefficient hospital stay, which sure. is like flying a seven forty seven to deliver one piece of mail. Right. Versus, right. Hey, let's go ground. Right. On this piece of mail. Right. So it's this balance point to say. Okay, and, and that's what good health systems will do. We'll have a clinical conversation to say, what's the right point for this patient demographic where we're, we're settled and we're happy to move them on to the next venue of care and not put ourselves at risk? Because some would say, you know, length of stay is a killer. We should have fewer days length of stay. What happens if you have a patient that doesn't have a safe home to go to, sure. lives on the third floor of an apartment building with no elevator, and you're rushing them out with a brand new need to go, uh, you know, live upstairs with no help. They're coming back into readmission, yeah. and it's going to cost you money because you did the wrong thing for the patient, and financially now you're getting docked. Things are starting to align. It's really exciting. That is now for the audience. Um, I know what bundled payments are. Yep. Maybe you can explain to them sure. what it means to you. Yeah, bundled payment. Like the analogy I give is a lot like uh, going to a buffet. A single price point for um, you know a particular procedure. And then there are either a couple hooks on the end of it. Either there's a quality hook where you have some of your payment at risk or um, uh, another hook where if you're efficient, you actually get uh, incentivized. So, right, there's a, the stick, the character stick conversation. So you're given an upfront stipend, spend it as you wish, how you feel the best deployment of your resources are. And at the end of it, if you are able to do so in a more efficient and value um scenario you get to reap the benefits right. from it but if you go over you're eating it you're eating it yeah so it, it's an interesting model where it's forcing health systems to have really great conversations but without the quality measures it would be uh, a show right right it would just be yeah, exactly. a cluster right where right. It, it, then health systems could if they were choosing to you know do the wrong things just start funneling patients through collecting all this money and then you have all these readmissions and these resurgeries and all right. that would be bad. Right. So the important part about the bundles is they have these quality overlays on them to say, hey, be as efficient as you can, but do what's best for the patient. Right. And here's the metrics that define that. Okay, and so so we talked about the, the right product, right? You're basically niche. If you got the right product for the right patient, we're going to pay a little bit more, we're fine sure, with no that, right? And that fits in with the bundle payment because... On the back end, you're going to have a better outcome and could make more Absolutely. money, right? Save more money. But how do companies, 
How are companies aligning with you? And I'm talking the Medtronics, the Abbotts, sure. the Bostons, the JJs. You know, not you know some startup company that's too hard. Um, but those companies, what are they doing to help you with this? Because I, I'm assuming you're looking for partnerships somewhere. Yeah, we are, and they're hard to come by. Okay, right? really hard to come by. So the the bigger organizations, the value that they bring to that is bringing some significant data to it, right? Of uh, the health systems nowadays and, and you know working for a top 10 there's a lot of data so uh, but there's a lot of mid-level hospitals you know the three to five hospital systems that don't have access to big data mm-hmm. and what these what these vendors are doing is they're bringing the registry information or their personal data collection points to bear on these somewhat smaller health systems to give them some big data capabilities, right? Even though they might only do a hundred joints a year, sure, a thousand joints a year, whatever that number is, versus a health system like Abbott Aurora that might do, uh, and off the top of my head, they probably do 30,000 joints a year. Yeah, that's big enough where you can start looking at your own internal data and say, okay, how do we get better? Right. Um, so, from a partnership perspective, what health systems in the top ten are looking for is. How do we collectively take expense out? How do we collectively demand match our products to increase quality? Mm-hmm. Like those are the conversations, and they're such macro conversations. They're really tough. Sure. Because everyone's got these ideas of grandeur. Oh and yeah. You've got to really again it goes back to the expectation setting of what's a, a positive future state for both organizations, and if it aligns. Let's march to it. But if it doesn't align, you got to walk away. And, and that's where it's struggle. And so the demand match, you're talking, is that, once again, the patient and the product and, mm-hmm. the, and the doc's hands? Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So smaller companies, just stepping aside, they're not going to have a lot of data, right? Right. They've got a new novel technology. Mm-hmm. They've done some study to get it through the FDA. Sure. 200 patients. You think it's really cool. What are you looking for from those startup areas to because startups put big companies on their heels a little bit yep. right so you want you want that competition yep, I do. so you do okay so what, what what do you want from a startup to come and call on your system yeah what, what i want from a startup is to one be able to identify that they're the disruptor right and, and that's a different role to play yeah than uh, you know the workhorse big organizations so as a disruptor, what you need to be able to do for me is, again, either put the big boys on their heels to say, okay, where there'd previously been a monopoly, now right. there's some other dollars flowing through. And then two is, is you also have to respect where you're at in your, your business cycle maturity. As a startup, it's really tough, um, and I'm playing my, my numbers here, it's really tough to demand a significant premium or any premium at all versus the big boys, Mm -hmm. right? So the value that you would get from going into a relatively large health system is getting your number of units up. Right. Like marketplace awareness, um, you know, number of cases. So like you said, you you were approved on 200. Let's get that to 2,000. Sure. Let's get that to 20,000. And that's what I'd be looking for from a partnership for a startup is, how do I help you increase your scale in a uh, manageable way? Mm Because coming to scale is always tough for startups, and then two, once we get you to scale, how do we make sure that we're, we are respectful of that value exchange between the two of us? Right. Of, uh, I'll bring you to scale, I'm not gonna bring you to scale or premium. Sure. I'll bring you to scale. Once at scale, let's talk about your marketplace positioning then. Right. But then let's remember who helped get you to scale. Sure. Right, which yeah. is. No, you're right. right. That's the exchange there is, I can help you, but I can't help everybody at a premium. That's right. just not how it works. No, it's, it can't be. Yeah. I, I, the, the margin of a typical non-for-profit is anywhere between, you know, 2 and 7%. Yeah. Um, so if every, uh, you know, product that I, I purchase out there, I gave somebody a premium for, it comes right out of my, my sure. bottom line. Right, of course. So question. So you've got, so you have these initiatives, like these bundled payments, mm-hmm. and it's attached to quality outcomes. Okay, and that's... Let's just call that that's at the higher level. You get down to the department level. Mm-hmm. And and I've met a lot of these people and they're controlling a budget. Yeah. Right? And so their budget is fixed. Yeah. Right? Now, administration, let's call you guys the administration of mm-hmm. the hospital, is saying we've got this initiative around a quality metric, right? Mm-hmm. That we need to improve because we took on a bundle payment, mm-hmm. right? That manager that's running that department 
there, I think there, there's a little bit of a disconnect yeah. because they're managing worried more about their budget yeah. for them and their, their, their team than the overall hospital. Yeah. Do you see that? I do. And, and so anytime you have this uh, integrated and collaborative care model, which is obviously the right way to treat the patients, what you're stuck is with this old hierarchy of department-based metrics, mm-hmm. so department revenue, department yes. efficiency measures. So the, one of the reasons why I go back to the entry point is so important with supply chain and administration is you need to get to the people that have the visibility across departments to be able to solve that equation. It's like total cost of ownership when you buy a car. Right, sales price might be lower, but your maintenance costs and fuel sure, costs are higher. Right, right. So you got to get to the administrators in the supply chain so that you can tell a different narrative, which is, hey, in the surgical suite, your PNL is. I'm going to blow your PNL up. Right. right. You're going to spend an extra thousand dollars. That's how it is. Right. But I'm going to save you twelve hundred dollars or thirteen hundred dollars downstream. Maybe it's one less radiology. Um, right. Uh, session. It's it's two more days reduction length of stay on the ward. So when you get to the administrator, they oversee the multiple departments that are impacted and can say, I'm willing to invest more here to save money there. Right. Knowing that net, it's improving my quality outcome and it's saving me efficiency. Right. So the problem is that, and this is a little bit how um, sometimes our structures cannot necessarily um, help us, is those managers are, are wonderful, but they're very much held accountable to their personal p mm-hmm. So when you have a patient that bounces around to eight departments, you have eight opportunities for those managers to worry about That's their right. p and not the overall. That's right. And it's tough to do because that visibility is really, it's, it's short supply. Yeah, well, so a, a patient goes in for X, they go home, they come back three days later because of Y, and, and they're admitted through an emergency room, but they're put on a different floor, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't come back to that one department, right? <clears throat> right? right. And so it's hard tying that together. Mm-hmm. So how, knowing that this is all changing, what are hospitals going to do to connect everybody to the, to the overall? Truly, it's not just the provider's goal. It's us as a healthcare. I, like we met, so the audience knows Bruce and I met at the premier breakthrough conference that was in Nashville. It's one of the best meetings I've ever been to because it opened up, you know, my life uh, nice. view of what's going on. And Premier's got this tagline: "Healing healthcare," mm-hmm. right? And I actually take that kind of personally in the sense that that's what we all should be doing. Yeah. Right. We need to heal our healthcare. So. It's not just your struggle, it's our struggle as a society to heal healthcare. Yep. And um, getting those departments and the people all aligned towards that overall goal has got to be tough. It is. And so what do you think has to happen to change that? Yeah, I think in a microcosm, right, so those of us that are not direct clinical caregivers, right? right? So I, I... you wouldn't want me to, you know, ever touch a patient, right? Because I would do something wrong and I'd screw sure. up. What organizations need to do is show how every one of our jobs essentially impacts a patient or an outcome. And where it gets kind of real interesting is we need to work on our change management process and communication pathways so that people understand what are our goals. Like our advocate Aurora is certainly to, you know, have about patients, you know, live better, heal, et cetera. Sure. So the struggle is how do you show that and how do you show progress towards that growth? Right. I think every health system in the U.S. struggles with that. Yeah. But if you looked at things like readmission rates or you look at uh, quality outcomes or you look at infections, you look at all these types of things, um, even bed sores or uh, pain scores, there's all types of things. We need to make sure that we get that to all of our caregivers and health systems do a great job at this, but... I think that's the missing piece is people have got to understand that we are treating uh, obviously a patient, but we're also treating a disease state mm-hmm. and we're, we're treating large populations of people and uh, individualized medicine. There's lots of buzzwords out yeah. there that, that are great. Right. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is that we are you know trying to heal our health systems. Right? I, I think that's an excellent tagline. And part of the healing that needs to go on is that we all need to be adding value yeah. to that patient's experience and that is both the resources and the actual experience of being in a healthcare environment and make it um, 
a more of a positive experience. Sure. Right. There's a lot of fear. Yeah, there is a lot of fear, and it's it's interesting too because, like I said, you're bringing every, you, you got to bring everybody together to the table because mm-hmm. to do this, the one thing that we're all seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing it, is that um, surgeons, doctors, physicians are all becoming employees. Not all, a large percent are becoming sure. employees of hospital systems. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't know the advocate of our system that well. Is that what uh, happening for you guys? Uh, I, as far as the future strategy, I mean, that's still up in the air of what it looks like, but I can say historically the Wisconsin market or the legacy Aurora was a significantly more majority employed physician model, whereas in Illinois is a significantly higher number of independents. And I'll say this, um, you know, I, I think either model works. Certainly it's all about aligning goals and expectations. But I, I, another thing that a salesperson can say to me, which will absolutely send me off the rails, <laughs> is... Well, you own your physician, so you can tell them what to do. And yeah. a lot of times that will end a meeting early for me. Sure. Um, because my clinicians that I deal with, both independent and employed, are my number one trusted resource. Mm-hmm. So where I think it's headed is not about the how. Um, or, I'm sorry, not about the what, but the how, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're an independent or an employed physician. I could care less. Okay. It's how do you choose to engage your partners, and that would be your peer group, but then also your administrators and your health systems about how are you going to change this healthcare dynamic. Sure. So to me, it's not employed versus independent, it's engaged versus disengaged. It's a great way to put And it. you can have either one. Sure. You can have disengaged employed physicians. Yeah. And you can have hyper-engaged independents. To me, I don't label. I could care less. Okay. Who wants to work with me to make healthcare a better environment? Yeah, I'm not going to label you whether where your paycheck comes from. You know, that's a, that's a really great point. I actually haven't heard that from from you know someone like yourself that it's about the engagement versus disengagement, mm-hmm. right? And that's really because that's the partner you're looking for, yep. right? Where you're going in and you're saying we've got a we've got an opportunity to either be better or to. Um, uh, yeah, just to be better and be better at what we do every day. Yeah. Are you on board, mm-hmm. right? And that's where you're going to get success. That's right, right. So no, that's that's really interesting. We're talking about um, you know new products, startups, getting into a hospital system. The one thing that you know I'm I'm excited because it's kind of geeky stuff, yeah. but artificial intelligence, sure. robotics, predictive analytics, deep learning, it's all over the place. And they talk yeah. about healthcare. And you know Apple and Google and all, you know yeah. all this. It's it, they're they're going to come merging into the uh, healthcare sure. marketplace. I don't know, but the the one thing that I look at is that all the investment that's going on, like in robotics, mm-hmm. right? Cool, right? Oh. If it if it helps patients and there's this big quality outcome from it, but you know I just question where robotics needs to play. I'm just from your perspective. You must get bombarded with this stuff. Sure. Yeah. And what's your thought on that? You know, my thought is, um, you know, I think all these technologies, and I will say all, have a certain deployment where they make sense. Mm -hmm. And all of these technologies have deployments that are absolutely asinine (laughs) for for why we would do certain things certain ways. Sure. However, what I've learned is that, um, you know, the big data is going to come, the Google, the AI, they're going to come. I welcome it. Sure. Come on. The piece that I believe they're missing is translational medicine, which is very different. What's, I don't know what so that is. So you can have Watson say anything that you want around the facts and numbers behind a patient demographic. Okay. So now translate that into care. Mm. Translate that into a change management process that informs the clinicians to make different decisions. So I think healthcare is data-rich, information-rich, decision-poor. Okay. Right? There's a lot of information out there. Yeah. But... We spend most of our time reading these white papers and understanding what they are and what they're not. Right. And often the real world doesn't apply that. I mean, I was, I was just putting, uh, you know, trim molding on my corners in my house this weekend. And my wife says to me, we'll just cut it at a 45. It's a, it's a corner. Yeah. I haven't seen one corner in my house that's 45 degrees yet. <laughs> that's right. Right? right. So it's yeah. similar to these white papers that if you find that right patient demographic where you have the AI and the Watson, you can do great things. Now find me that one person. Because all the rest of my patients are 47, 48, 42 degree corners, one size lopsided, yeah. one size has drywall missing. Right, right. That's the real world. Right. So what I say is bring on the big data. 
you're still going to need people to translate that into real-world treatment plans. Yeah. And that's where I think the engagement is so important. Yeah. Because that will allow us to differentiate ourselves as a health system is when you can leverage big data, translate it effectively into your patients. That's different than pontificating on what white papers should be written. Right. There's a time and a place for that. Right. You know, academic medicine has historically, or research has historically struggled to get it translated into protocol. Right. No, that's so true. So I also look at, you know, startups because I've spent my entire career really in startups. And I do get worried that um, the way in which healthcare is coming, startups are going to be stressed to get to market. Yeah, too quick, yeah. Right? And it's going to take longer. I really believe... It's going to take longer for some of these companies, but then you know, back to robotics. Um, do you, and I know you said this, some things you've seen are a little asinine. Yeah, I are we are we just taking technology and looking for a home for it without people think? The one thing I always ask, I say, well, who's going to pay for that? Yeah, right. Is it? Are you adding costs? Are you taking away costs? I mean, how when when somebody comes to you with this new robot? I mean, yeah. what are you thinking? So I. I, my job is to share a couple of perspectives. Um, one is certainly to get that robot evaluated by the clinicians to understand what is the clinical value driven. Um, but then it's also to bring awareness that, you know, healthcare pays for the what, they don't pay for the how, right? So from that perspective, I need to bring, I need to share that angle of conversation, which is, um, you know, robotics. We don't get paid to use a robot. We get paid for the procedure. That's right. So we need to balance all the different factors, and one of them is you know, a multi-million dollar investment in robots, how many of those do we need? That's exactly Where do we need them? What's the patients that we're gonna put on them? Um, who should be trained to be using a robot? What are their competency levels? Right. Um, all those types of things, and, and that's from you know, the general surgical robots to the orthopedic specific robots to there's you know, neuro robots out now, all kinds of craziness. So robotics is such a, a nice broad it is. Uh, brush that I don't have to call any uh, organizations out by name, we all know that it's a, a growing environment. But the conversation really is, what is the benefit we derive from that how? Yeah. And if you can't articulate the what, then the how doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I joke that, um, you know, you can do an appendectomy, uh, some surgeon told me, who knows, I'll be careful how I say this one. Uh, a particular surgeon once told me once that they could use a Diet Coke can as a stent in the biliaries and it wouldn't make a difference, <laughs> right? Okay. Because the vessel doesn't move, right. it's open, it's open, life's good. Right. Um, you know, you gotta be careful about making sure you don't over-deploy technologies. Yeah. And robotics in general are so cost prohibitive that we as health systems need to worry about how many, where, and how we use them. Right. Because we could just spend too much money. Yeah. And then we, we can't, Pay for advancements in other areas, so it's just a yeah. It's a, everything has a cost. Yeah, it does. It's um, uh, on this robotics thing. Twenty years ago, it was I'm going to buy this equipment, whatever it is, and I'm going to market it to my community so I get more patients. Yeah. That's not really a healthcare system's problem anymore, right? It's I mean, you're in the neighborhoods, right? Yeah. You're you're a large IDN. I'm gonna probably get you coming through my door because of who we are as a as an IDN as this hospital system yeah. because of the quality work that we do. Marketing something like that, I, I just to me in my head, and I could be wrong about this, isn't where the the importance lies. Right. Right. So to me, I think we underplay the impact of um, our own employers' decisions on healthcare and what that really means to where I go and seek care. Yeah. Right. I'm going to go to where my insurance covers me. Right. Right. I'm going to an Advocate Aurora facility because that's where my insurance is through. Right. Or barring an emergency. Sure, sure. Um, and then I'll take anything, whatever, anybody to stop the bleeding. Right. Um, so to me, some of that direct to patient marketing is really an interesting concept that I don't really fully understand yeah. personally. Because ultimately, um, I, I love that patients are becoming more engaged in their um, healthcare. I think mm-hmm. that's hyper important. But I think the dynamic shift that needs to happen is people need to become more engaged in their health. 
Yep. Not their health care. Different. And as these pay for quality m- models change, and eventually we're going to pay for health and not pay for sickness. And that's the paradigm that I'm interested to see switch. Mm-hmm. Because eventually, I would just use robotics as just a, an example. Eventually, you won't get paid for a procedure. You'll get paid to prevent a procedure. And I don't know if that will be within my lifetime. I certainly hope so. Sure. But eventually, um, you know, a, a, a acute care environments will need to shrink, mm. right? Because if you keep people healthier, you don't need as many. That's right. And we're already seeing that in general, right? The, the venue changes that hospitals have less volume year over year than ever before. We're not seeing less patients. We're not doing less health care. It's the types of things that we do in the hospital environment are diminishing because we can do them more efficiently in other environments. Sure. So it's the move to outpatient. Right. Outpatients then moving to surgery centers, surgery centers to clinics, clinics to home. So it's it's sliding downhill, which is a good thing because the healthcare needs to be provided, but we're doing it in, again, we're not flying 747s to deliver pieces of mail. We're doing it with the right venue, with the right expectations. That's a great, no, that's a great so thought. So to me, robotics is another example of that of, Robotics are great. No problems with robotics. But do I ever see a future where there's a robot in every OR? No. Yeah. Because it's overkill. Yeah, for every specialty. Yeah, it just doesn't need to happen. Yeah. At least as it sits today. Right. Well, and it's and it's because it's the controlling of that cost, mm-hmm. right? And it's, am I going to get this, you know, better quality outcome? And is it going to pay for itself, right? Am I going to make or save money from this thing? Well, and you better prove it. Yeah, and what would be an interesting conversation is that it, it, for those that do believe that, and they're, they're out there, sure, they're, they're, and they're not shy about it, the conversation I'd like to have with them is if we continue to invest at that rate of capital, will that increase or decrease the rate of consolidation of healthcare systems in the U.S.? Hmm. And I think that answer would be if we continue to invest at that level of capital, there has to be less hospitals. Yeah. There's no way around it. Yeah. Because right. not every hospital system can afford to invest at that level of capital. That's right. The, the rural shops have to go away. They would. So yeah. it's just a conversation of, okay, yeah. everything has a downstream effect. So what's really interesting with this conversation is that probably for the last two or three years, as I'm you know talking to people and um, giving my opinion, mm-hmm. which everyone has one, oh, yeah, so. <laughs> is that selling into a hospital system, mm-hmm. especially on the conversation we had, it's a business-to-business sell, yep. right? It is this idea of those one-on-one personal relationship that I have with whomever, mm-hmm. right? That's that's important, you know, because you need to build trust for somebody, for them to allow the use of your product on somebody, right? Mm-hmm. But selling into a hospital is becoming more and more complex, more and more like selling to a, a large corporation like, um, you know... Uh, um, Apple, right? Sure. You want to sell something, you're gonna you're gonna call on forty different people to try to get yeah. your product in, and that's really what's happening here. Absolutely, right? Uh, and and that just changes the mindset of a lot of commercial people yep. out there. I'm intrigued that a lot of the vendors that I speak to, you know, especially some of the big boys, they um, almost require a B2B background. Mm. Right? You almost need to have proven yourselves in different training grounds. Right? Of you know insurance or even product but b2b sales is where i see yeah. this thread yeah of people and then you add in your your segments depending on your uh your manufacturer you know there's the military trend there's the exports right. player trend there's yes. you know <laughs> stereotypes are are there for a reason like they built themselves yeah right um but ultimately i still see this b2b thread through all of it and that is to your point exactly is this particular vendor representative capable of handling the complex dynamics? Mm-hmm. And if they are, they those are the people I'm dealing with now. Right. Maybe that's because I'm a large IDN, but yeah. But but I but see, it's funny because I've seen this coming, and I I you know built this one sales organization. Uh, well, it was Advanced Bionics and Intellis, and we hired two people with two to five years experience selling copiers, ADP, Cintas, where they're going to sell into systems and they're, they're getting killed to teach them how to go about this a lot differently. And they were very much more adept at going, yeah, of course that's how you would sell it. Right. Like, why wouldn't I sell that way? And it's like, perfect. (laughs) We're we're on the move, right? We're on the move. It's a different environment. Yeah. So when you, when you look out two years from now, say two, three years from now, 
how do you see things different between um, how you're engaging with companies today? You know, I, I see, you know, as I was kind of alluding to the translational medicine yeah. between AI and other such, I see supply chain as doing a lot of that translation between the clinicians and the vendors. Okay. I just feel as though the clinician time is going to be further pressed and mm. supply chains need to come up with better venues to have dedicated time for decision making. Okay. Versus decision-making, you know, in the, the clinical office setting with, you know, a rep coming in and calling on docs. Right. I just think that's going to stop yeah. at some point here, or at least uh, significantly to me. And so and you're saying that they're going to come to supply chain first, mm-hmm. spend majority of their time there, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the, the physician might be the end user, but then you also have your clinical people, your nurses, your NPs, yeah. that are probably part of that mm-hmm. conversation. They're, they're, they're not going to make the final, but you're going to want, like you said, you're going to go to those those 30-year veterans and go, what do you yeah. think about this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those decisions will be made, at, again, just as the venue of care is moving from hospital, not everything has to be done in the hospital, not every decision needs to be made by a surgeon, right? Because ultimately there's a lot of end users of exam gloves, for example. Right. Uh, you know, the doctors absolutely get a significant say in that, but you haven't lived until you pissed off a nurse, right? <laughs> when, when, when that nurse has to put on a glove every 15 to 20 sure. minutes, and they're reminded of the disdain yeah. that they have for you in the poor choice you may have made. Right. Or, as I like to say, the good choices we've made of, I, I like those phone calls too of, thank you for fixing that. Sure, sure. It goes both ways. Sure. So to me... You know, it's supply chains going to engage differently. Yeah, vendors are going to have to, you know, use supply chain because I believe in the future, supply chain will have a much more efficient venue. Okay, for vendors to sell into mm-hmm. than today. Okay, today it's still really disparate. For every health system has a different entry point. Yeah, well, that's it. Right, every hospital is a little bit different or a lot different depending. That means though, for that to happen, you're going to have to, as a supply in the supply chain business. Be more open to meet with people, mm-hmm. right? To be able to have those conversations, because there might be a small little company out there that could solve a big problem, yep. but they can't even walk inside a hospital without getting chased out, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. And ultimately, that's because they shouldn't be in a hospital. <laughs> that's probably right. right. That, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, well, and people are listening to this. I'm not in the hospital. <laughs> I'm in a business office, yeah. um, off-site, way away from any hospital. So yep. yeah. There's. To your point, Jim, there, there's no supply chain is a, a service organization, in my opinion. Yeah. And I'm not taking up revenue generating square footage in a hospital. Yeah. But that's for clinical care. That's right. So I do my business outside of the clinical care environment. I'm yeah. beginning to expect vendors will start to do the same. Okay. No, that's good. So I know we're, we're um, a little bit, we've got about two minutes left. Okay. okay. So... If you were to give advice to just a salesperson, somebody in marketing, that, hey, just change these one, two, or three things, what to just be a better partner with us? And I a partner is such a loose term, but be somebody we'd rather do business with, maybe, yep. is a better way of saying it. What would that be? You know, one thing I think that would be an advantage to both sides is, is as the marketing groups, and I love the creative folks, I'm not one of them. What I'd like to see them do is really be able to both arm the sales force, but then arm the supply chains with the value analysis document, right? Okay. And that is, what is a real short and sweet value equation? And then what are the assumptions that go into that value equation? Real clear and transparent. What that would do for a supply chain professional is, hey, um, we believe that our product would save you know, 1.2 days length of stay. Right. And we think a length of stay is worth this. Right. That alone is, unfortunately, what half of the meetings end up being with a vendor is a supply chain arguing with a vendor about the lack of assumptions. Right. Where did that number come from? Sure. That reimbursement's too high. I don't get paid that. That's right. from the East Coast. Right. You know, in the Midwest here, if you took the East Coast and the West Coast reimbursement and divide it by two, that's what I get paid in the Midwest. Right. That's just how Medicare Medicaid's built. That's right. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. So when you tell me I get paid $18,000 for a procedure, it's more like ten. Mm-hmm. Okay, now starting from there, uh, you know, let's have a value analysis document that is relevant for your customer. Okay, take just a couple minutes to customize it for the customer because ultimately, 
in my vision, supply chain is going to be doing some selling for you. So make their job easy because they're going to be getting to these value analysis or service line conversations. And you need to train them very quickly to be able to um, share your value proposition with the clinicians. Okay. I can get time with the clinicians whenever I need to. Yeah. So, what, But your value analysis process is probably different from it someone is. else's, right? So how would I know what yeah. you want? That's the problem. That, that's, the thing, <laughs> that's the thing I can't. So it goes back to my, my first point. Your, if your first call point is that supply chain, yeah. be ready with that exact question. Okay. Okay. Fair. Here's what I want to engage with you. I want to sell you some products. Right. So B, I want to get you something in front of your value analysis team that makes sense. Right. So help me customize what you need to get in front of your team so you can confidently um, share your support of my product. Yeah. And that should be the first meeting. And, and if done correctly, you're going to build you and your team will have better business relationships with people because you're speaking the same language, mm-hmm. right? And they're bringing that value but for you. You've invested up front right. in the correct vocabulary that makes sense for that health system. Now you've created a pseudo-document um, that allows that vocabulary to re- retain even when you're not there. Right. And something for them to, you know, as a supply chain professional, to look at and reference and think about. Uh, so you're kind of selling to me all the time when I see that on my desk. Yeah. Versus the, the 10 minutes and hopefully I can just forget you and move on. Right. But it is exactly <laughs> that. It is, okay, now we've got common vernacular. We've got, you know, common goals. We've agreed upon outcome. Now you've just put the ownership on me to work for you, which yeah. is really powerful from a that, sales perspective. That's really interesting. I never even would have thought about that. The, the best salespeople that you could ever have in your life are supply chain folks. Yeah. Once you've sold us on the value, sure, you can't turn us off. Right. Okay. No, that's fair. Well, Bruce, I uh, want to thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. You know, this has been great. I think um, I might actually reach out to you in a couple months and, and do this again sure. because... This is very valuable, and there's so many things that are, are going on, and I know the audience is, um, they want to learn. They want to know more. Yeah. And uh, just a wealth of information. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I will say that about the audience, too. If they're listening to this kind of stuff and they're continuous learners, great people, uh, glad to share our opinions and, and yeah. do what we can to help. All right. I appreciate it. Yep. And so, Medical Sales Nation, that's it for today. Um, until next time, hang tough.